Thank you, Father, for songs old and new that teach us truths from your word. And God, I have a, a pretty big, ambitious assignment. I want to explain to people something about your son that they may not have realized. It's taken me years, Lord, years to understand the magnitude of what Christmas actually is what the arrival of Jesus in human flesh actually does for us, what it means for me today. So help me, give us, Lord, give me clarity of thought, give me faith in you and love for you and love for people as I try to explain it and sharpen our understanding as we ponder you, the greatest person of all, that we may know you and love you and live through you. In Christ's name I pray, amen. On the front side, let me tell you, I welcome your questions. It's evident sometimes from emails and from text messages I get through the week that I have not made myself clear. Uh, Between services, I got a very encouraging text message, which said, basically, that was, I get it and I appreciate you, but that was quite a bit. Could you slow it down a little bit? The answer is, I'll try, but probably not, okay? And that is exactly the, the sort of, of response that I would actually expect in view of what we're talking about. Years ago, I met a, a Navy chaplain who was telling me what it was like to live on board an aircraft carrier. I was surprised to learn the size and the magnitude of those things. They're basically floating s- cities, and he told me that they were even able to play quite a few sports on board the ship. That led into a discussion of sports and he said something just a casual remark that stuck with me and has made me think about human nature especially as i find it in myself ever since we were talking about basketball because that's apparently one of the things they were playing and he said i don't like it because i'm no good at it and i thought you know how human that is to experience something, learn something, hear about something, and if you're not immediately good at it, most most of us don't want anything more to do with it. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound true to your experience? There is something in human nature, and it's not a good part of human nature, it's actually part of our sinfulness, I think, our selfishness, that in this vast world with all the things that we could do, could learn, and could experience, if it doesn't make immediate sense, if I don't immediately enjoy it, then that thing is either stupid or unnecessary or both. Why am I telling you all this? Because when it comes to understanding God, when it comes to reading His Word, the Bible itself will tell you there are things in it that are deep and difficult to understand. God is a person. He is the mind that created all the others. He is the one uncreated being in the universe. He's not a creature. He wasn't made. He simply exists. That's the Bible's claim and starting point, that the world around you, beautiful, intricate, complex, interdependent on itself, and what your teacher told you way back in the day was called an ecosystem that all of that beautiful interlocking nature is not mother nature is not a cosmic accident it is the handiwork and it shows forth the artistry of God and that God made human beings to love him and enjoy him forever that you're made in his image and one reason you love life and hate death One reason people are repelled by violence until they grow very accustomed to it is it's not natural for human beings to die. It was an effect of sin. And one of the effects of sin is when it comes time to understand and to think about the God who made you, some things about him will be easily and immediately apparent. You'll enjoy those. You'll go deeper with those. Other things about him, including his very nature, You just might say to yourself, I don't get it. It's beyond me. My invitation to you, including this sermon and any other you hear, when you hit that barrier, push forward a little bit. It's just a part, a natural learning curve of learning to love and understand any other person. And that is true also, and that is true especially of God. As I told you last week, when it comes time to personal relationships, you don't even understand yourself. 
Anybody who's been married for more than a few years can tell you that no matter how much you love your spouse, sometimes they remain a mystery. You don't understand what he or she is thinking. You don't know what they're doing. Anybody who's raised kids can tell you that a child's mind is a galaxy all of its own. Children do things that are perfectly sensible and good to them and parents don't understand. And there's anytime there's a meeting of the minds, there's going to be some tension. There's going to be some distance. And today we're talking about the Son of God being born into the world. We're talking about Christmas. And the nature of God, here's where it starts to get deep. Here's where I can understand it, but I can't get my arms entirely around it. I can understand it, but I can't fathom it. Much like my marriage. I understand that I'm married. I enjoy being married. But after more than 30 years of dating and marriage, there's depths to that, there's depths to that lovely woman I married that I, I still don't understand. That's okay. That just is a reminder that I'm in a personal relationship. It is someone else. The Bible begins with the very fact that there is one God, but somehow he exists eternally as three persons. That's implicit in the very first verses of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then it says the Spirit was hovering over the waters. There's all kinds of little hints and flashes in the very first pages of the Bible that God is somehow one. There are not many gods. There are not three gods. There is one God, but somehow he eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When Jesus is praying, the Son is praying to the Father. He's not casting his voice. He's not pretending. He's not talking to someone who isn't there. You say, you already lost me. I don't understand how there can be one God eternally existing in three persons. Frankly, I don't either. But one of the greatest theologians to ever live who just went to be with the Lord, J.I. Packer, a few years ago I recommended his little book, Knowing God to You. If you haven't read that, it's worth your time. It's worth the effort. He says the simplest way to think about God is to think of a team because there is one team. The Dallas Cowboys are one team. Not a very good team, but they are one team. But that one single team has many persons on it. Does that make sense? All analogies fail, but that's a pretty good one. The nature of God, the character of God, who God is, is try That's where the word Trinity comes from. And a little aside, don't ever let anybody tell you that they don't believe something because the term that we use to describe it isn't in the Bible. Terms are just invented words that people use to summarize a great deal of learning. For instance, do you believe and have you experienced gravity? At this moment, else you would be going upward, right? The word gravity is nowhere found in nature. You can look through the oceans, you can look through the forests, you can go up into the mountains and look for the term gravity. It doesn't exist, and yet it is a real thing. The nature of God is triune. That's a term that people who read the Bible carefully from the very beginning invented to describe the God who is actually there. And the miracle of Christmas is that the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, Jesus became incarnate. That's another big word. That's a Latin word. Our word incarnation literally means it became flesh. Here is, I'm going to tell you the doctrine right at the top, and then I'm going to show you why it matters. Don't please... Don't give up. Don't turn your brain off. Push through the learning curve a little bit. The incarnation is a term that Christians have used for a very long time to describe this biblical fact. Jesus, who is eternally God the Son, took on human nature. So Jesus is now one person with two natures. The nature of God, because that's who he is and always has been. And the nature of a human being, because that's, when he, that's what he became when he was born. That means that Jesus is truly God and truly man. 
Now, that's just a statement. Those are my words. Those are words I wrote down to summarize what John, the beloved apostle, is telling us in his gospel. This is where we were last week. These sermons fit together. John 1.1, describing eternity past, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, what's it say? Was God. There are two persons in the Trinity right there. In the beginning, from eternity past, from before there was ever a creation. This verse, if you think about it, looks back farther than Genesis 1.1. This verse describes eternity past past, before there were time, before there was a creation, before there were human beings, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's the deity of Jesus. If you're keeping notes, John 1.1 is a clear, there are many, this is the clearest and simplest explanation that Jesus, who John knew, who John had meals with, who John watched heal the sick, give sight back to the blind, who, G, who John watched endure a mockery of a trial, who John watched die on a Roman cross, that Jesus was the Word. He was there in the beginning. He was with God, and the Jesus that John had known was actually God. That's the deity of Jesus. Here's his humanity, his incarnation. And the Word became flesh. In other words, the Word became a human being. He took on a human body and dwelt among us. Don't miss that. John is just an ordinary guy. If you would have met John the Apostle in his day, in his time, he would not have been an impressive person. He was a commercial fisherman and a successful one. He was good at what he did, but he was a man of no particular importance. One of the constant criticisms thrown back at the disciples of Jesus is that they were unlearned men. They were not scholars. They were not articulate. They were not particularly well taught. And John, the commercial fisherman, is telling you the Christmas story in a verse. The Word of God, the Word who was God, the Word who was with God, that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John is talking about himself. He lived among us as an ordinary human being, but watch his thought progress because John is going to tell you, as human as he was with the human body that we knew him in, in other words, we saw him laugh, we saw him grow tired, we saw him sleep. We saw him rest. We saw him die. All of that is what happens to human beings. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Well, now something is changing because we don't ordinarily speak of human beings as having glory. John is thinking about the deity of Jesus now, even as he experienced his humanity. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here's a test to show you the superiority of Jesus. Can you think of any other human being that fits into that sentence? You know anybody of whom you would say, I have seen his or her glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, and this person that I met is full of grace and truth. Anybody like that? No one like that. That is the miracle of the incarnation, that in a specific moment in history, Jesus, who was always there, who always was, who is God, took on human nature. And now he remains one person, He's not half God. He's not half man. He always has been and always will be God. But at a specific moment in time, he took on flesh. He became incarnate. And John lived that so close, so normal, so real that he says he dwelt among us. Last week, I might have failed you. I asked you jokingly if when Jesus was in the manger, you thought he was pretending to be a baby. And somebody sent me an email, and it was clear from the question I hadn't explained myself very well. So let me ask you again. When Jesus is in the manger, born of an actual ordinary woman, 
with blood and tears and cries and fear and pain the way every other human being ever has been born. And he's cleaned up and he's swaddled. He's wrapped in clean cloth. He is placed, for lack of a better place, in a manger. And his mother and the man who is to believe to be his earthly father look on him. Do you think he's pretending to be a baby based on what it says here? No. He's an ordinary human being, though he remains God. Toward the end of this, I'm going to tell you something that is so obvious and clear from the scripture that I should have known it all along, but it only dawned on me several years ago, and it has continually blown my mind. If you understand what I'm telling you here, you'll understand how loved you are. If you understand what I'm telling you here, you'll understand to what extraordinary lengths God has gone to make himself known. Because yes, as I've told you, personal relationships, personal love between two individuals is difficult, but God has worked in a way that is completely impossible to fathom. We can understand it, but we can't completely understand all of it. We can't master it because God, knowing how lost his creation was, came after us. As deep as this is, the story of the Bible is actually simple, that there is a God who made this universe, who made you the crown of his creation so that you could enjoy a loving relationship with him forever because your instinct is right. You weren't made to die. People fear death and hate death because God himself is life and he made people to have life with him. But we chose sin, we chose rebellion, and our lives are different and painful and fearful every single day. The reason we're not horrified by it is that we're used to it. You lock your doors because you know that in the world, if you don't, someone may come in and take your stuff. You call your loved ones and your stomach clenches sometimes when you get certain phone calls because you fear that on the other side something painful has happened and your life is about to get wrecked. That's the way we live because that's the human condition after sin. But it was not meant to be that way. And God, who made the first perfect creation, actually stepped into it in the person of his son to live among us, to redeem all things, and to make all things right. That is the incarnation of Jesus. Let me tell you why it matters. The incarnation of Jesus matters because it means that Jesus entered fully, if you're keeping notes, Jesus entered fully into our experience as a human being. Jesus wasn't pretending to be a baby, and he wasn't pretending to be a boy either. Look with me in Luke chapter 2. I want to read you one of my favorite Bible stories, and one of the reasons it's my favorite is because it's funny. Luke chapter 2, verse 39. In verse 39, Luke, I'll just dropping into the middle of the story, Jesus' parents have taken him to the temple. They've presented him as a baby. And here's what happens. Luke 2.39. Everybody with me? When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. This is Jesus they're talking about. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. There's the ordinary humanity of Jesus. He's growing. He's becoming stronger. He's learning and the favor of God, his father, who knows all this, is watching all this, is participating all this, the favor of God was upon him. Here comes the funny part. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy, Jesus, stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives' acquaintances and, and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Are you seeing the humor here? Have any idea how embarrassing it would be to lose the Son of God? 
God has become flesh. They've left him behind for a day and haven't noticed. And it gets worse. Verse 46, after three days. How was Mary feeling in those days? You ever lose your kid? You ever have that momentary experience when they're very, very small? They're standing right next to you, but they're so short you can't see them, and you just have that momentary terror as a parent that they're not there. And they say, right here, Dad. Oh, good. Grow a little so I can see you more easily. For three days, they've left him behind. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers. Look at the ordinary humanity of this, listening to them and asking them questions. Jesus pretending? Why is he listening? Why is he asking? Luke already told you, because he's learning. And you'll say to yourself, how can God learn anything? God can't learn anything, but human beings do. Does that make sense? The eternal God has become a human being, and in his human nature, he is subject to all normal human limitations, including being a baby and weak. There was a time in the manger when Jesus himself did not know who he was. You remember being an infant? Neither do I. I have pictures. I have evidence that I was once a baby. I don't remember. I can't give any firsthand account memory of being a baby. That is the nature of humanity. He's listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him, he's speaking too were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Does it sound like maybe mom is blame shifting just a little tiny bit? <laughs> See how normal, how ordinary this is? You ever lose your kids and yell at your kids? That's what frightened parents do. Listen, this is a big moment in the development of Jesus. It's the only story from his childhood that we're told. He said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? He's 12. But Jesus, in the normal course of human development, growing in wisdom and in favor with God and man, understands that Joseph now is his earthly father, his stepfather, but he has a father in heaven who has a mission and a life for him quite apart from anything Joseph would ever tell him. Jesus understands. He knows who he is. His parents don't. Look at verse 50. They did not understand the saying that he spoke to them, and he went down with them. And came to Nazareth and was, what's it say there? He was submissive to them. He was subject to them. How old is he? Your 12-year-old behave? Did you behave when you were 12? No, you didn't. 12, 13, 14, those are tough years. If you're going through them right now, hang in there. It really does get better. You're in a tough spot. It's just a normal part of human development. Things are happening in your brain and in your body that are unrepeatable and incredible. Jesus is going through them, but he goes back with his ordinary parents who can't no longer understand the meaning of everything he says to them. He goes back to Nazareth, a town of no particular reputation, a little backwater. And what did he do with his parents once he got home? He did what he always did. He obeyed them. Why? Because Jesus is entering fully into our human experience. Verse 51, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. In other words, Mary spent long hours pondering this boy that is growing up in her home. Knowing beyond any shadow of a doubt that he is actually hers. And yet knowing that he is much more than hers. He is actually the son of God. Luke 2.52. Look how Luke bookends his story at, a 12, at an age of an infancy. And at the age of 12, he wants the reader to understand how human Jesus is. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. These two verses that I've read you, 
The child, Luke 2.40, the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And Luke 2.52, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God. And man, tell you that Jesus entered fully into your experience and mine as a human being, but here's the difference. He obeyed God perfectly. He wasn't a difficult teenager. He wasn't a disobedient child. He was submissive to them because the story of his whole life will be what your life never could be. His story is going to be one of perfect obedience to God. That's why you read in Luke 3, 22, now Jesus is fully grown. He's being baptized and his father is going to speak and the spirit is also going to appear and his father is going to vouch for Jesus. Jesus has gone through birth, infancy, childhood, adolescence. Now he is a full-grown, fully mature man. And this is what the father says at his baptism. You are my beloved son. What's the rest of it say? With you, I am well pleased. This is the father saying of the son, this is my boy. He does everything I ask. I'm well pleased with him. Listen to him. That is the humanity of Jesus. Here's the mind-blowing part. Jesus has always been God, but he wasn't always a human being. He became a human being when he was born into the world. That's why we're celebrating Christmas. It's not a historical and cultural thing that is woven through Western culture to give us good memories. It does that, but it's much more than that. It is a remembrance in grateful worship that the God who made us stepped in among us and lived among us, obeying the Father perfectly, even to the point of death. And what does all of that mean to you? Give me a few more minutes and I think I can make it practical and you can go home comforted. What that means is this, Jesus is perfectly understanding and compassionate. Whatever you're going through, he's been there. However you've suffered, he understands. I've been a pastor for quite a while, and several years ago I became a volunteer police chaplain, and the chaplain school training that I was given was some of the most valuable I've ever received. Chaplains do all kinds of things, but the main reason they call us to come is because something terrible has happened to somebody. And often you're there to give the news and to support those people until their loved ones arrive. And that was the main reason I didn't want to become a chaplain. I didn't know what to say or do in a moment like that. But they sent me to this course, and the trainer who had a seminary degree from the same school I attended really, really had some wise and practical insight, and something he said stuck with me. He said, listen, if it's really bad, the people on the scene are going to be in shock. They won't remember anything you say unless you say something stupid. They'll remember that forever. And the counsel was, give you the best training you ever have. It helps in all areas of life, people that are hurting. If you don't know what to say, guess what you should say? Nothing. Because part of the human experience is we don't understand. Husbands really don't understand what wives go through. Wives don't really understand what their husbands are dealing with. Children don't understand parents. Parents don't understand children. Bosses and employees don't understand each other. Friends don't really get one another, not always. The humanity of Jesus means that he gets it. Everything you could ever experience, even up to the point of death, he is understanding and he is compassionate. There is nothing that could ever happen to you in this life that the God-man who gave you life does not understand. He understands that as the God who made you and he, just as importantly, he understands that as the human being, the God who became a man who lived through it, he understands it not from a theoretical point of view, not only from the point of view of a creator, which would be enough, but an actual participant in the human race. He's perfectly understanding and compassionate. And the book of Hebrews, which is where we're going to close this doctrinal teaching, as you may have noticed, this is a different kind of sermon. I'm explaining to you a biblical idea, not a single biblical passage. 
I'm explaining to you why the incarnation, why the birth of Jesus, why Christmas matters. The book of Hebrews explains that better than any other book in the Bible. And the reason is this. The book of Hebrews, as the name might tell you, is written to Jewish Christians in the first century. Jewish, have, Jewish people in the first century came in great numbers to Christ. Many others were hearing about Jesus and were being told, often in the synagogue, this is the Messiah that God promised. We have to trust him. But persecution had begun. Some were starting to fall away. Others who had not yet made up their mind were thinking about abandoning their trust in Jesus and returning to their Jewish religion. So the book of Hebrews is written to them to tell them, listen, Jesus is it. He's better than Moses. He's better than the angels. He makes a better promise. He is, most of all, a better and final priest. All of the readers of this letter would have known a high priest in their lifetime. If they were very old, they would have known several as those priests lived and died. The book of Hebrews says Jesus is extraordinary. Jesus is not another prophet in these last days, the book of Hebrews says in its first words. God has spoken to us through his own son. So the book of Hebrews is going to show the humanity of Jesus and Jesus as the God-man standing between God and people so that we can be understood, so that we can be loved, and so that we can be forgiven. Hebrews 2, 17 speaks of his understanding and his compassion. Look, speaking of Jesus, Hebrews says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Jesus became a human being, in other words, to be just like his people. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In other words, Jesus became a human being to stand between God and people and cover their sins. Verse 18, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Look in Hebrews 4. It'll make it even more explicit. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. The priest they had known on earth could only pass through the veil of the temple. This priest is different. He doesn't move into the temple. He goes into the very presence of God. He goes into the heavens. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. In other words, let's keep trusting Jesus. Read 15 and 16 if you have it in your bulletin with me. Read this, please. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Look at the beginning of verse 15. This is life-changing if you understand it and believe it. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Whatever weakness you're going through, Jesus, the God-man, says, I get it. Jesus' disciples watched him grow hungry. They watched him thirst. They watched him work so hard that he grew exhausted, and on one occasion, you may remember, he fell asleep on a boat in the middle of a storm. He was so tired that a storm couldn't wake him, and his disciples, fearing they would drown in a shipwreck, woke him and asked him a painful question, don't you care if we die? Why was he sleeping? Well, why do you sleep? Because you're exhausted. Jesus' disciples watched his eyes grow bloodshot. They watched bags grow under his eyes. They watched him wake up with fresh energy. They saw him need food. According to John's gospel, they even saw him prepare food. He made breakfast for them on one occasion. He ate with them repeatedly. Why? Because he's an ordinary human being with ordinary human needs and weaknesses. And 
better still, it says Jesus is one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Let me make this personal. Think for a moment, just between you and God, because this could be a little intense if you do what I ask you. Think about the sinful behavior, the sinful thought patterns that continually drag you down and that wear you out, that make you think sometimes, I wish I wasn't like this. I thought I was past this. I wish I could change this. You got it? Jesus understands that. Whatever it is, any category in which human beings can be tempted, Jesus was tempted. To be pride, to be proud, to be tempted physically, to be tempted in the spirit, to put himself first, to harm others, to neglect others, to be cowardly. Every single thing about humanity in which humanity fell, Jesus, who was once a 12-year-old who obeyed his parents in a no-account town called Nazareth, he was tempted in every respect as we are, but here's the saving part, yet without sin. He said, I don't understand that. God can't be tempted. No, God can't be tempted, but human beings can. Here's a simple little doctrinal tip. Anytime you think about Jesus and you think that he can't possibly be like that or do that, you're very likely thinking about his deity. You're thinking about the fact that he's God, not about the fact that he became and remains a human being. There's nothing that can happen to you in ordinary suffering or in temptation that Jesus does not only understand, but that Jesus didn't experience. That's why it says in verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When you need him, when you are weak, when you have fallen because of what Jesus did as a human being, you will be understood and you will receive mercy. Number two, that means that Jesus can be our substitute and our savior. He lives in our place and he is able to completely save us. Here's Hebrews 7. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. That's a very elegant way of saying the reason you have known so many high priests is they keep dying on us. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood how long? Permanently. Because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. The preacher who ordained me was a Scotsman and a theologian. And I've always envied those who are from Ireland or Scotland or places like that as preachers because just the fact that they say it with that accent makes them sound more profound. Perhaps you've noticed. Alistair Begg among them. Alistair Begg says Jesus is Lord and people say that's wonderful. We've never heard it like that. Yes, you have. It's just a great accent. The Scotsman once called me because he was a brilliant man and he would ask questions. And out of the clear blue, at about 2 o'clock one afternoon, I was sitting at my desk in the church office way back when I was on staff. And he said, and I won't attempt his accent, it was wonderful. Dr. Ken Connolly said, Bruce, where is Jesus and what is he doing right now? Man, I was thinking about going to lunch. I, I, don't, I don't understand. Just threw me into the depths all of a sudden. But I kept reading my Bible and I have the answer. Look in verse 25. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to do what? Make intercession for them. What is Jesus doing? He's speaking to the Father on your behalf right now. 
Not that the Father needs reminding, but that's why we pray in the name of Jesus. We pray in the name of the one who came for us, who lived among us, who actually physically became one of us, tempted as we are, subject to our limitations, subject to our weaknesses, who is able to completely save anyone who draws near to God through Jesus because even now he's alive to intercede for us. And that means, and this is the mind-blowing thing, this is what you may not be surprised, but I was. This means, number three, that Jesus will someday make us as perfectly and wonderfully human as he is right now. See, there's something in you all your life that tells you that being alive and being a human being is a pretty good deal. It's the limitations and the frailties and the sin that is killing you. People love life. Nobody hates death. People can be made to be callous to death, but nobody loves it. Even people who have spent all their lives around it, who through their profession, either trying to save people from death or as warriors, trying to deal death. Nobody loves it. Everybody hates it. Everybody tries to avoid it. All your life, you've known that having the life that you do and being a human being is a wonderful thing, and yet you're racked with anxiety, and yet you have these terrible sinful habits that you cannot break. Your relationships remain difficult. What is all that about? That's the devastating effect of sin on everything God made. But Jesus stepped into actual human history, not as an observer, but as a participant, as a human being, so that someday through his death on the cross as eternal God and actual man, he could make us someday the people we were designed to be. Listen to 1 John, explain it. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Don't miss verse 2. This is the verse that opened it up to me. Beloved, we are God's children now. If you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, you're God's daughter right now, sis. If you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, you're my brother right now, sir. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. Watch this. But we know that when he appears, we shall be, what? We shall be like him because we shall, what? See him as he is. I don't get it. Let me spell it out. Jesus always has been God. John said that in the first verse of his gospel. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. That has always been true. The nature of the God who is there is that he has always existed, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But at a specific time, only about 2,000 years ago, God the Son became a human being. And here's the part that blew my mind. He remains a human being. Because it says... What we will be has not yet appeared. In other words, we don't fully know what we're going to be. We're already in God's family, but the fullness of our identity is not yet apparent to us. But we know this. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall, what? See him as he is. You're going to see him in the flesh. You're going to see him as Thomas did. Remember Thomas who has that wonderful nickname that must haunt him? Well, he's in heaven. Nothing can haunt you in heaven, I suppose. Doubting Thomas, who said, I won't believe unless what? If I see his hands and I see his side. Because I saw the Romans nail him to the cross and I saw a soldier run him through with the spear. If I can see the man I knew, the man I had so many meals with, the man that helped us fish miraculously, if I can see him with the wounds that no one else would have, then I'll believe. Jesus showed up in person and said, 
Check it out. Put your hands in the wounds and believe. You're going to see him as he is. And when you do, you will be as he always wanted you to be. Maybe this is just me, but the fact that an eternal God who is the first cause, who is the only uncreated being in the entire universe, the fact that he would become a human being and remain a human being for the rest of eternity so that I could see him and know him and love him, one person to another and amazingly one human being to another, it just goes beyond my understanding. Jesus has not changed in who he is. He is God, but he has taken on a nature just like yours, but without sin, so that you can love him and enjoy him forever. And your existence with God in the future will not be harps and clouds and spirits floating out there. I think the reason this was surprising to me and to many Bible teachers I talked to, not theologians because they think of everything, but just ordinary, well-read, serious-about-the-Bible Christians, they had a hard time understanding that Jesus, who is God, remains a human being because we have this idea that having done his work, he took off his humanity. He didn't. He won't. And all because he loves you. So that in your humanity... In your nature, the only nature you have, he has two, the nature of God and the nature of man. You only have one. You will always and only be a human being, but you will someday be everything that human beings can be, everything that you individually, personally were first created to be. That's all going to be true because Jesus came in the flesh for you. So this isn't a cultural idea that makes people feel better and creates good family memories. It does that, but it's much more. It means that you are loved and understood from the moment you are conceived until the moment you die. That no frailty, no sin, no betrayal from other people, no abandonment by human beings, no amount of suffering, spiritual or physically, physical can separate you from the love of God because the Son of God not only understands it, He lived it. Nothing that will ever happen to you was not endured first by God in the flesh. That's how much He loved you. That's why you can go to the throne of grace with confidence. That's why you can turn to Jesus at your worst, at your most sinful, at your most shameful. He can see all of that and understand it and have compassion and empathy for you because he felt those very temptations, but he conquered them so that he could be your savior. You are more loved than I could ever tell you. And if I read the end of my Bible, if I read the book of Revelation correctly, and we see Jesus physically again in the book of Revelation as he himself is revealed, someday the human being that I was created to be will stand next to you as the human being you were created to be, and you'll probably have occasion to turn to me and say, you kind of blew it that one Sunday. You didn't tell me how good he was. And I'll agree with you. And we'll worship because the Son of God became a human being so that we could someday be what God created us to be and enjoy Him together forever. Let's pray. If I could speak directly to those who may be watching online and also to those of you who are here in person, this is the story. This is the story that is the key to all the others. This is what God has, know, has done to save you. If you don't trust Jesus, can I invite you to do so right now, to give up on yourself, turn away from your sin, and ask him to save you? He absolutely, literally cannot do more. It's all been done for you. What remains now for you is to trust him. You will find mercy. You will find grace. You will find forgiveness if you trust him. That's why he came. If you do that, just in the, I'm going to give you a moment of silence just to turn to him and say, Jesus, I believe. I believe and I confess that I've sinned, but I also believe and I receive you as my Savior. 
Father, I pray that you would give grace to those who need you to turn to you and be saved right now and ask your son Jesus to be their savior. If you're watching online, if you will do that by sending us a text, if you will let us know that you've done that rather by sending us a text to the number on your screen. If you're here under the tent, you're not certain of your relationship with God. This is how you enter into it. This is how you are understood. This is how you are loved. This is how you will be forgiven. If you've done that, fill out the card that's in your bulletin, please, and let us know. You can drop it in the baskets on your way out. And Christian, maybe in this pandemic, you've suffered as you never have before. You felt more lonely. You felt weaker. You felt more frightened than you ever have in your life. It's not a cliche. It's the Christmas story. Jesus understands all of that. He felt it. He experienced it without sin. All your temptations, conquered. All your fears, face down, mastered. All for your sake, so that you could turn to him in any moment of weakness, in the depth of sinfulness, in the worst and the most broken part of your sin-stained humanity. You can turn to him and hear him say, not only do I understand, I will save you. I will save you to the uttermost. As I live to make intercession for you. What a Savior. Jesus, thank you. This week, help us go out with great confidence that you understand us. And if no one else in the world can, if parents, families, siblings, spouses, closest friends, if they cannot understand us, you always will. And you live even now to save us. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Crosspoint said, amen. God bless you folks. It's been quite a Sunday. Again, I always welcome your questions. Sometimes we have to go into depths to understand the love of God for us. If there's something I said that you didn't understand, something you don't agree with, feel free to, uh, feel free to email me or text me or call me. We're a community, not only of faith, we're a community of learning. We're on our way to becoming the kind of people Jesus wants us to be right here and right now, trusting that because of what he did, at Christmas, he started to do at Christmas time, he will someday finish that good work. God bless you. Love you. Bye-bye.